Well, good morning, everyone, and welcome to Grace Toronto. My name is Kingsley. I'm one of the pastors here at the church. Uh, wherever you are on your journey of faith, welcome. We're so glad you're here today. Uh, at this point in our service, we're going to give our attention to the reading of God's Word and the teaching of God's Word. And specifically, we're going to be in Ephesians chapter 4. So if you have your bulletins with you, or you have a hard copy Bible with you, uh, or you want to use your phone, feel free to open up your phone and Google search Ephesians 4 or use your preferred Bible app. No one will judge you for that. Uh, please feel free to pull up the text in front of you, and we will read verses 25 to 32. To help us with the reading, Sharon, please. Today's scripture reading is from Ephesians 4, verses 25 to 32. Therefore, having put away falsehood, let each of you speak the truth with his neighbor, for we are, neighbor, for we are members one of another. Be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger, and give no opportunity to the devil. Let the thief no longer steal, but rather let him labor, doing honest work with his own hands, so that he may have something to share with anyone in need. Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such as is good for building up, as fits the occasion, that it may give grace to those who hear. And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God, by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you, along with all malice. Be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave you. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Thank you, Sharon, for reading. Let's pray before we begin. God, we want to invite you here, Lord, to speak to us through your word. Holy Spirit, we ask that you would speak to our hearts directly as we look at some of the applications of some of the things we've been studying for the last several weeks and months. God, I pray that the words of my mouth and the meditations of all our hearts, Lord, would be pleasing to you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Dress to express. Dress to express. A couple of years ago, I had a friend who worked in the fashion industry uh, walk me through Eaton Center and teach me the art of good dress. His rule, his first rule was dress to express. Last week in Ephesians 4, verse 22 and 24, Paul introduced a clothing metaphor. A clothing metaphor meant to engage us and encourage us to embrace who we are in Christ. Calling on Christians to strip off the old patterns of our previous life in sin, we were called to put on the textiles and patterns of our new life in him. Paul taught us to dress, to express Christ who dwells within. Like my friend, who had a rule for physical dress, Paul says there's a rule for the way we spiritually dress. Dress to express Christ within. As we turn to verse 25 to 32 today, Paul builds on that metaphor. Speaking specifically about the way Christians ought to spiritually dress, Paul invites us to look into the mirror of God's word and to reflect on the way we clothe our speech, our thoughts, and our actions. Studying Ephesians 4, Paul's going to encourage you and I to do three things today. Number one, dress to express Christ in your speech. Number two, dress to express Christ in your thoughts. And lastly, dress to express Christ in your actions. Dress to express Christ in your speech, your thoughts, and actions. Those are our three points today. Let's look at our first point, dress to express Christ in your speech. As we look at Ephesians 4 today, we'll see Paul teach us six things about what it looks to put on the Lord Jesus Christ, to be clothed in Christ. 
And for those of you investigating the faith, I'm going to be upfront here, okay? We're going to be looking a lot at Christian application today. And so you're probably not going to feel like a lot applies to you. And I ask you for charity in this. See, there comes a time in the family life where we need to have some honest conversations. And as a guest, we want to welcome you into our family room as we talk and fold laundry together. But please, please don't take it personally that we will be focusing on the Christian family dynamics today. Uh, What I will say before we look at our, our, our first point of dressing to express Christ in our speech is that you probably are reading this chapter and thinking, gosh, This sounds a lot like all the other religions, all the other ethical systems. Don't lie, don't steal, be kind, be forgiving. Don't don't all the religions teach these things? Don't all ethical systems teach these things? How is Christianity any different from all the other ethical systems in the world? That's a great question. And I'll say this, the, the difference is actually in our motivation for application. You might wonder, what do you mean by that, Kingsley? Well, See, most ethical systems will say that you ought to live a certain way and do certain things because it's either right or good. You do it because it's right or good. Christianity says, yes, that's true, but it goes deeper than that. We live this way as the Lord's word tells us to, and we don't steal, and we don't, we don't lie, we be kind, and we be forgiving because it's who we are. It's who we are in Christ. We dress to express Christ and us who are united to, in Christ and nothing less. And that makes all the difference. We do these things because we believe it ultimately describes who we are. It expresses who we are in him. And so, I want to encourage you, Christians, to remember that when we hear these things commanded of us through Paul's writings, really, we're called to do this and we're dressing to express Christ, nothing less. What the scriptures here are describing is who you are in Christ. So let us look at the first thing Paul asks us to consider, dress to express Christ in your words, in your speech. In verse 25, Paul urges us to put away falsehood and to speak truth to one another. In verse 29, he writes, let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such as is good for the building up of one another. It appears that the Ephesians were not always consistent in the way they dressed their speech, apparently some. Some said they were Christians, but when you listen to them, they didn't actually sound like it. Lying to one another, falsehood was a problem in the Ephesian church. Corrupting talk, corrupting talk, literally translated, rotting words seem to be an issue. In context, rotting words, rotten words, likely refer to coarse joking, profanity, cussing, and harsh words meant to inflict pain and hurt on the one who receives them. This was common in everyday Roman entertainment and culture, and Paul says, Christians, this kind of speech that you're mirroring, this kind of speech that you're filling the streets with, the church with, it's an inconsistency. This kind of speech is not who we are. This is not us. This is not Christ. Uh, you might wonder, well, at Grace Toronto, are we really, like, do we have issues with these words? Like, are we really that bad? To some degree, yes. 
In general, I'd say we're pretty good with our words. We are, we are. But like the Ephesian church, we have our inconsistencies. Falsehood plays itself in our communities in many ways. We see it in the blatant lies that people utter in the day-to-day. We see it in our white lies that we utter day-to-day. Some of us exaggerate about the things we've done in conflict. Some of us exaggerate about the things other people have done. Some lie about their secret sins. Others hide the seriousness of their sin. It's under control, we say. Yet we have several years of history saying it's not. At work, at work we lie. We lie to get what we want and we lie exaggerating our productivity. We lie to get what our clients want. At home, we lie to our spouses about where we've been. And to our children, we lie about what we'll do for them. Breaking our promises, we lie. Whether it's in a white shirt or a black shirt, we find ourselves putting on this shirt called falsehood. And I'm no exception. This past week, my wife and I, well, Hannah called me out. I had said that I was gonna do something with the family and I forgot about it, and I broke my promise. I said I would do something, and I lied. And I need to be held accountable. And Paul is holding us all here accountable here when he says, that's not right. The lies are not the clothes of Christ. The lies are the old threads of your old life apart from Christ. In verse 25, Paul urges us to not speak falsehood. He also gives us the reason why. why. Why do we need to stop? Paul says we should not lie, but speak truth to one another. Why? Because we are members of one another. When we lie to one another, Paul's saying it's like we're lying to ourselves, to our own bodies. In, in school, when I was uh, studying in uh, x-ray school, I had to take path, uh, path, pathology classes, and uh, one of the pathologies I learned about was congenital analgesia. I don't know if you've heard of congenital analgesia before. It's a medical condition where the body, for whatever reason, isn't able to process pain. Literally lying to itself, a person with this condition could place their hand in an open flame, and their brain would say, it's okay. You're not feeling pain. Nothing's wrong. It's okay. It's not hot. Can you imagine how devastating this could be to a person's body. Several years later, after school, I actually met my first patient with congenital analgesia, and their hand was burned because their brain lied to them, and they didn't realize that they were leaning up against the stove in a flame. They burned their hand. Lying to one another is like this. It might seem innocent at first, but keep it up. When the truth comes out, eventually, not just you, not just me, we all get burned. Has falsehood dressed your lips? Have, it, have you made it a habit to clothe your speech in dishonesty? If, if so, Paul's encouraging us to repent together. That's falsehood. What about corrupting talk, you might wonder? Is, is that a problem for us here at Grace Toronto? Do, is that a big problem for us? Like falsehood, on the surface, I think we do a generally good job. But like falsehood, we also have our inconsistencies also. A lot could be said about the profanity 
A lot could be said about the coarse joking we engage in, uh, but given the time, let's talk about something that often gets dismissed. Sarcasm. You might think, whoa, 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 sarcasm? <laughs> Kingsley, that's a love language. It's actually the sixth love language that Gary Chapman missed. I'm not trying to be sarcastic here. Hear me out, hear me out. Hear, seriously, hear me out, because this is something I wrestle with too. Sitting with this text, God convicted me that actually for many of us, our sarcasm is sinful, and here's why. Sarcasm, according to the Merriam-Webster dictionary, is the sharp, ironic utterance designed to cut and to give pain. Saying one thing when you mean the other, the goal of sarcasm, the sarcastic snap, is to hurt someone, to cut someone deep. I know a lot of people here at Grace Toronto, including myself, who pride themselves in being sarcastic. I know a lot of people who would say that Jesus uses sarcasm in the scriptures too. Jesus uses sarcasm, they say, when he talks to the Pharisees. Some will also say, Paul, Paul the Apostle. Paul the Apostle uses sarcasm when he talks to the, first Corinth, uh, to the Corinthians in 1 Corinthians. I certainly believe that. That wasn't until I started opening up God's word and looking at it. Was it actually sarcasm? No. It was something entirely else. Something different. It was satire. You might wonder, what's satire? Well, satire might look like sarcasm on the surface, but satire under the hood is quite different. Satire uses irony and ridicule to reveal foolishness without, and here's the key difference, without the intent to cut down or hurt. And this intention makes all the difference. In every case that we want to call sarcasm in the Bible, it's actually satire. When Jesus speaks to the Pharisees, his goal isn't trying to be mean and to cut them down. He's trying to actually break through to them. In Paul's letters to the Corinthians, he's trying to lead people to repentance when he uses satire, when he uses his words. In the Bible, a good quiplash, a good quiplash is never the first choice of response, but it is used with a loving heart. I don't know that many of us know how to do that. And I think for those of us who pride ourselves on being sarcastic, God's saying here, if you can't tell the difference between sarcasm and satire, maybe we shouldn't use it. Loving, gentle scorn, as many of my sarcastic friends like to call it, is not a thing in scripture. In fact, something else is encouraged. Verse 29 tells us what? What is it? Good words that are used for building up as fits the occasion that it might give grace to the ones who hear it. How are we to dress our words? Paul says, with words that build up. If you were to go online to uh, blueletterbible.org and to pull up their Greek interlinear Bible, you'll see that the word build up actually is made up of two words. And it's not the words you think of. It's not build and up. It's actually something else. The word build up in Greek actually has the image of the word house in it and also roof. And commentators say that embedded in this word is the image of a strong house with a roof over it. And what this is supposed to convey is the idea that our words are supposed to be a place of shelter, of safety, of comfort, of warmth. 
Our words are supposed to bless, beautify, and bolster people. I know some of us think that sarcasm is a great way to get laughs and to make people think that we're funny, sharp, sophisticated. And many of us use it unintentionally as a shield in moments we feel threatened. And I get that, I really do. But what if God had a better reputation for us? What if God had in mind a better reputation for you? One that didn't center on us being in the spotlight, one that didn't center on us using lighthearted jabs to return a favor to someone who mocked us or hurt us? What if God had in mind a greater reputation for us to be known as encouragers, refreshers, comforters, peacemakers, disarmers? Our words are powerful things that can tear down and build up, that can refresh or rot. Corrupting talk in the community is like introducing rotting mold in the home and nobody wants mold in their home. And so, brothers, sisters, let us look for the rot. Have you been clothing your speech with rotten words? If so, let us repent. For those in leadership, I'm thinking of my elders, fellow pastors, let us set an example of good speech for the congregation, for our brothers and sisters, eh? For small group leaders, lay leaders, let us set a good example of good speech for our brothers and sisters, and let us encourage our leaders in good speech. For those of you who participate in our church, maybe not in leadership, attend small group, encourage one another with your good words that bolster, that beautify, that bless, Sarcasm is not a shirt in Christ's wardrobe, and it should no longer be in ours. This is our first point. Paul encourages us to dress to express Christ with our words. Our next point is dress to express Christ in your thoughts. Verse 26 says, be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down in your anger and give no opportunity to the devil. Let all bitterness, wrath, and anger, and clamor, and slander be put away from you along with all malice. And here, Paul wants to address our Christian thought life, specifically our angry thoughts. It appears that some in Ephesus have some major anger problems. Uh, Culturally, it would appear that the Ephesians were quite the riotous bunch. If you went to Acts 19, you see it. Ephesus is in a full-blown riot. People are angry. You might wonder at Grace Tornow, are we a riotous bunch? If you came on Grace That Tap, yeah, you'd see we're a pretty fun bunch, but not riotous in that way. I'm talking about angry riot. Are we a riotous bunch? Yes. I would say yes. We've come close to it at times. When times got hard, we let the anger consume us, and we let our souls riot and rage against one another. A lot can be said about anger, but given the time we have today, I can't say everything, but something I do want to be clear on is that the anger that the Bible advocates for is different from what many of us feel and express. In our culture, in our culture, we have a couple ways of expressing anger. Some cultures, some in our culture believe that anger is all bad. It should be suppressed and it should be canceled. The eighth century Buddhist scholar Shantideva once wrote that anger is the most extreme negative force that one should aim to be purified and rid of. Uh, mindfulness practitioners believe that anger is also a negative emotion, not to the same degree of, as the Buddhist believes, 
but still should be subdued through their practices. Uh, Modern-day Stoics would say that anger isn't entirely a negative emotion, but agree with the Buddhists and the mindfulness practitioners that it should be subdued. Some in our culture see anger as something to be suppressed, canceled, subdued. Others have an entirely opposite view. Anger is not something you get rid of, but release. Whether slowly or explosively, some of us let anger consume us. We see this kind of anger all over the place with our friends, families, colleagues, spouses. Spouses silently seethe as they resentfully stare at their sleeping spouse. Colleagues trash each other behind one another's back as they let their angers rage in the office. Friends slander one another as they're consumed by their indignation. Some of us aren't controlling our anger, but are controlled by it. And what's interesting is that society is beginning to recognize. We're beginning to recognize the weakness of both these approaches to anger. For those who advocate for an overly subdued, canceled anger, there's a risk of growing a benign tolerance, as uh, Rebecca Pippert warns. This benign tolerance or denial to feel anger can negatively affect human flourishing. What do I mean by that? Addiction, racism, sexism, oppression, these are all things that should rightfully stir sorrow, but not just sorrow, great anger in us. Yet when we suppress it, what do we do? We risk suppressing calls for accountability. For those who advocate for controlled, uh, for those who are controlled by their anger, excuse me, uh, psychologists such as those in the Cleveland Clinic found that in one study, though effective for temporary relief and at a temporary level, letting yourself be controlled by your anger actually doesn't help you deal with the underlying cause. Rage rooms were all the thing a decade ago, and studying the effects of a rage room, people, though felt good leaving the rage room, found that a couple hours later, they still felt rage inside. It doesn't deal. It doesn't deal with the problem underlying, the underlying problem. And so what's the result? The result is that society grows increasingly angry, and we have trouble moving on and moving forward in life together. How do you address your angry thoughts? Are we silent seethers? Unregulated ragers? Subduers who refuse to be angry when God says we should be? The way our culture deals with anger isn't the way that leads to flourishing. You might wonder at this time, well, how should we deal with anger then? What, what does the Bible have to say about anger then? How do, we, how do we be angry then? Paul tells us, cautiously. Cautiously. Be cautiously angry. Verse 26. Paul says here, be angry. It's okay to be angry, yet do not sin. In other words, watch yourself. This is countercultural. Why? Because whenever we're offended, what do we say to the ones that offend us, to our enemies? We look at them and we think, I'm watching you. I'm watching you. You're not going to hurt me again. I'm watching you. Paul says, no, you watch yourself. In Matthew 21, we see Jesus show us that it's okay to be angry. In Matthew 21, you see Jesus enter the temple and he literally flips tables in anger. He's got a whip that he sat in a pew 
knitting together so that he can whip people with it. He tells you it's okay to be angry. And why was he angry? Because God's name was being dishonored. There was a time for that. There's a context to that. It was okay to be angry because the glory of God was at stake. Jesus also shows us to be angry to be uh, angry at injustices such as oppression. Uh, he, in Mark 10, children were being treated as second-class citizens. It says that he was indignant at the disciples for treating the children as such. There are certain moments in life where strong anger is the right response. In the context of evil, injustice, oppression, anger is an appropriate emotion to feel. But we still need to be cautious. We need to be cautious. We don't want to be entirely subdued by it, or we don't want to, be, we don't want to subdue it, excuse me, or be ruled by it. We don't want to be entirely ruled by it or subdue it. In verse 26, 27, 31, Paul tells us why we should be cautious. Why should we be cautious? Well, apparently, anger can lead to faithlessness and stumbling. Look at verse 26. Do not let the sun set in your anger. What is this idea that Paul is referring to? What's, what's he getting at here? Well, this is the idea that when Christians get angry, uh, Paul's saying you have to actually trust God with your anger at the end of the day. When the sun sets, so should our angry thoughts. Turning off the stove at night and leaving our simmering thoughts with the holy sovereign God who watches over us, we enact faith as we trust God with the provoking injustices and evils we see in the world. And I get it, I know this is hard. I know this is hard and I've struggled with anger quite a bit in my life, but the Christians, you see, we are creatures of faith. And in our anger, we have the opportunity to either practice it or cast it aside. We also mentioned the danger of stumbling. We see this in verse 27 and 31 when Paul talks about giving Satan a foothold. In verse 31, he lists off a whole slew of things like bitterness, wrath, anger, and clamor, things we need to put away. Why? Because it can lead to stumbling and spiraling. The way verse 31 is written, if you look at it, it's meant to make you feel like you're spiraling. Spiraling not towards Christ's likeness, but towards Satan's likeness, darkness. We know we are not called to live like the devil. So we gotta be cautious in our anger not to get tripped up by him and pulled into his likeness. Be angry and do not sin. Be cautiously angry. As you iron out your thoughts today, Paul invites you to dress to express Christ in your thoughts. If you want to engage the conversation of anger more, I want to encourage you to read Tim Keller's book, Forgive. Uh, He does a great job helping readers navigate the ideas of forgiveness and anger in more detail. Um, We don't have time to get more into it, and so we're going to move on to our third point, dress to express Christ in your actions. As we move on to consider the way we are to dress our actions, Paul invites us in verse 28 to uncover, or so he invites us to consider uh, a very specific problem, excuse me, in the Ephesian church, an area of inconsistency. In verse 28, Paul draws our attention to the alarming problem of stealing, stealing in the church. Apparently, there are Christians who have been stealing for a living. Now, when you read this, I wonder, what are you thinking? When I read this at home, I was like, whoa, no, what? God, surely Christians don't do that. 
And yet Paul says, it's here. Verse 28, Paul writes, let the thief no longer steal. In the grammar of the Greek, uh, it doesn't lie. It was a present and active problem. In Greek, there's syntax and grammar that can show you whether something's active or passive, past or present. And this is active and present. It's happening. You might be tempted like I was to think, surely this is just an Ephesian problem. Kingsley, you don't have to preach about this at Grace Toronto. Yet I wish it was. Because a couple weeks earlier, a friend in our church here, one of my friends, confessed having to lie about something in a form to get something that wasn't his. Tax evasion, plagiarism, insurance fraud, budget fudgeting, time theft, seeding and torrenting, copyrighted information and materials. These are all modern examples of stealing. And I know some of you are smiling right now thinking that I can't be serious about this. God is serious about this. God knows you're engaging these things. He sees it. And you might think you haven't gotten caught yet, but God sees you when the lights are down and no one is around. And do you know how he feels about it? Verse 30. It breaks his heart. It grieves him. Whenever we live inconsistent lives, mixing and matching the old life in sin and our, our, and our, and our new life in Christ, God's heart breaks for us, not just in our thoughts and speech, but also in our actions and in, in your stealing. The scripture says God is grieved. It crushes him. It should crush us. I get that we feel the temptation to want to get ahead I get the temptation that exists in our lives to want to pursue comfort and gain. I get the temptation there is to to want to do whatever possible to serve that end. But Paul says, this is not who you are, Christian. This is not who you are. You are something entirely else. You're different. You are not a giver. You're not a taker. You're You're a giver. Look at verse 28. Let the thief no longer steal, but rather let him labor, doing honest work with his own hands so that, he have, so that he might have something to share with anyone in need. When we were saved and made new in Christ, our fundamental orientation moved from being takers to givers. This is why Paul exhorts us to work hard, to work so that we can give. And Christians, the beauty of hard work is this. It reflects not only who you are in Christ, but also the beauty of Christ who labored for your good, my good, and the good of the world. Going the distance and laboring for our salvation, Jesus did the heaviest lifting ever imaginable as he bore our sins. I know some of you hate your jobs. You hate your workplaces. Some of you really don't like your colleagues. Work is a pain But do you see, as a new created person in Christ, the purpose, our purpose in life has changed. It's no longer a means to an end. It's no longer about us. It's about God and others. We're called to be a blessing to others. When you work with your hands, friends, and you do good, what is good with your hands? You do it with an attitude that reflects Christ. You model for the world who Jesus is. 
You testify to the world the beauty of what Jesus did. You share Christ with your neighbors. Verse 32 reaffirms this idea. If you read it, it says, Be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another, as God in Christ forgave you. In every, in every action, any action, every action, not just with our work, you begin to embody Christ to those around you when you live this way. Your kindness, your kindness at work, when working, becomes a sunbeam that guides people to the, to the warm, kind face of Christ. Your tenderheartedness, your compassion becomes a compass that points people to the never-ending, always, forever, and tender heart of Christ. Even the way we forgive one another becomes a sign that directs people to the forgiving, costly grace of Jesus Christ. This is who you are, recreated to display Christ in our actions. Not just some, all our actions. Fathers in Christ, mothers in Christ, brothers, sisters, let us dress to express Christ in our actions. As we begin to wrap up, having reflected on the way we dress as Christians, I want to end by taking a few minutes to check in with everyone. How are we doing? Looking at the text, how are we feeling? Having looked at God's holy word in the mirror that it is. Feeling ashamed? Embarrassed? Guilt-ridden? Powerless? I know that's how I felt. Sitting with this passage for more than 30 minutes, it felt like a fraud. I felt like a phony. I felt like a fake. Sitting there on, on Wednesday, reading this passage, I remember saying to God, I feel like a phony, fake. God, I'm not who you created me to be. I'm not even who I want to be. Where does anyone get the ability to live like this, God? How can anybody be clothed like this? This is impossible. What do I have to do, God, to get the power to live like this? Because it's beautiful. It's good. It's attractive. I know who you created me to be. I know you created me to be this way, but how do I do that? How do I get the power for that? Maybe you're wondering this. I'll tell you what God said to me. I took my Bible. I opened it up at random. And I landed on John 19. If you open your Bibles and you go to John 19, you'll see something beautiful there. Something powerful there. Something breathtaking there. What you'll see is a king, bare, battered, and bruised, stripped, naked, nude. It says in John 19 that Jesus was stripped by four soldiers. Four soldiers came and stripped the clothes from his back, dividing it. They split it amongst their sinful pack. 
Why? This was to fulfill a promise of the past by Lot cast that God would share his clothes with us at last. Stripped so that sinful soldiers might be clothed by him. God let Jesus be stripped and crucified so that we who hope in him might one day dress and be clothed in him. So that sinners like us might be clothed in Christ. God let soldiers take the clothes of Christ. So do you feel like a failure? You feel like a fraud? You feel like a fake? Christ says, you don't have to. You ever wonder how you get to don the threads of Christ? Christ says, I'll show you. I gave you all that you need. Your guilt, your shame, I take it all in exchange for the new clothes that bear my name. I hung there, naked and bare, so that you might wear the clothes, my clothes, the clothes of Christ. How does anyone get the power? First, Christ pays for our sins. He sets us free from our sins. He sets us free from the sins of our old life and the pattern of our old life. And then in his dying and rising, he sends his spirit into you. Christians, the spirit of God does dwell in you. I know you don't believe it oftentimes, so hear it. Hear it proclaimed to you from the gospel. The spirit of God dwells in you and he empowers you to put on Christ daily. You don't have to dress to impress anyone. If you dress to impress, you will feel like a fraud. You will feel like an imposter. And the gospel says, those days are done. In Christ, you are made new in him. And so now you are freed in him through the power of the spirit to dress to express your savior. And so, let us do that. Let us do just that. Let us pray. God, as we meditate on these things, as we sit with these things, would your grace wash over us? Would your grace encourage us? Would we know that we are forgiven when we confess our sins and repent? Would we know that you also empower us to live consistent lives in Christ? You saved us for that very purpose, O oh God. Not just from our sins, but to live in righteousness. And so God, help us, resolve us to do this, we pray in Jesus' name, amen.